Well, good evening. It's such a joy and privilege to be with you here this morning, this evening. Excuse me. You can tell I'm a, a pastor, right? Sunday mornings. What a tremendous opportunity is to preach to you on one of, if not the most beautiful, mysterious, comforting doctrines of our entire faith, the, the Holy Trinity. It is uh, overwhelming even to think about how, how to open up this beautiful, astounding doctrine to you and to apply it to you in ways that you haven't heard or read before. Um, it truly is. It's daunting, but it's truly a privilege, and I'm very grateful for it. Although our main focus will be on our Confession of Faith, chapter 2, paragraph 3, I do ask that you would open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, excuse me, Matthew chapter 28. Excuse me. Matthew 28, we're going to be looking briefly at the Great Commission there in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Augustine said regarding the doctrine of the Trinity that nowhere throughout the revealed will of God is this truth sought out with greater labor Nowhere is our finding out of this truth more fruitful, and nowhere do we err with greater danger. In some respect, I think Augustine's words here depict the doctrine of the Trinity kind of like a a Mount Everest, as it were. Every genuine Christian can see the Trinity in Scripture, just like everybody in the region can see uh, Mount Everest, this gigantic mountain, and how it, it's obvious and unmistakable, and it just swells up out of its surroundings. If you can't see it, you're spiritually blind. You haven't been given eyes to see and behold the true God as he is. And yet, while some may stay back and simply behold the wonder of this great mountain, and while some may even dare to timidly tread the outskirts of its slopes. If we were to actually ascend those heights, it takes hard work. Not only is it laborious, but the ascent is very difficult and there is great danger in it because one misstep here or there can have such deadly consequences. Yet, of course, just like the view from the top of Mount Everest provides a perspective of the world that takes your breath away, Nothing is so rewarding in the Christian life than an intimate knowledge of the Holy Trinity. And nothing is more foundational in the Christian life to rightly understanding every other doctrine of our faith. And so the climb might be arduous and dangerous, but that view from up there enables us to rightly see everything else in the world. And this is my daunting goal for tonight. Not to actually ascend those heights. We don't have the time for that. And there are better men for that than me. But I want you to see how our confession serves as a guide for ascending those heights. I want you to see how it gives us the lay of the land. As it were, it points us to the right path. It protects us from the dangerous pitfalls around. So that we might, by God's grace, ascend those heights and lead our people up those heights. To taste and see that the Lord is good. So to direct our focus, Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18, this is God's word. And Jesus 
came and said to him, to his disciples, all authority is in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our God and our Father, we pray through the name and the merits and the intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ that you would pour out your Holy Spirit and that you would add your blessing to our reading and preaching and contemplation of your word this evening. Help us, Father, to see and behold who you are as revealed in Scripture Lord, that we might love you and adore you and praise you and obey you and further your glory here on earth. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Tonight I want to begin by asking just a very simple question. Why are you here this evening? What is it in the providence of God that has led you to this day, to this place, to this moment? Why why are you here this evening? I think if we were to trace out that question for each one of you individually, I'm sure there would be some fascinating and encouraging circumstances. You could bear witness to how the Lord has brought you to this place, to this moment here this evening. But I think if we were to take a step back and in a broad sense to try to answer the question, although I can't know the details, the specifics of your life, I think I can point to two very basic reasons as to why you're here. First and most foundational reason is that at some point in your life, although you were dead in your trespasses and sin, although you hated God and hated others, although you were entirely bent in on self, going your own way, chasing your own lust, fulfilling your own passions, at some point in the mercy of God, the Father having elected you from all eternity, the Son having secured your redemption on the cross, in due time, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon your heart. And God raised you to new life and granted you salvation through the knowledge of the truth. You are here tonight because of the mercy and love of God. He saved you. Brothers, I know most of you are pastors and you probably preach to others more than you are preached to yourself. Let me just say, you're here because God loves you. God loves you. You. We confess total depravity. We'll all say, I'm the chief of sinners, right? Your sins are many, and your churches may be small and struggling, and your mistakes in ministry might follow you around and haunt you like an evil spirit. But if you were joined to Christ in faith, God loves you. He cherishes you. He rejoices over you. And that's why you're here tonight. But when exactly did this happen? If you think about your conversion. And again, I can't say this specifically, but I can say that your salvation was evidenced and illustrated and proclaimed and sealed even in your baptism. In a very true sense, you are here tonight because of your baptism, which pointed to the work of God in your heart. 
Well, the second reason that you're here tonight, I think I can confidently say as well, is that in some sense, most of you here are pastors or deacons or leaders in your local church, and you are here for the good and growth of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we think about this, what is the commission that you've been given as a minister, as a leader, as a pastor, as an officer in the church? And what is it, not only the commission that you've been given, but what is it that will lead to the good and growth of Christ's church and the advancement of his gospel? That's found right here in Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. And that's why I begin here this evening. Because the beginning of your Christian life, the essence of your Christian life, as well as the foundation for your calling as a minister, is found in this passage. Your Christian life began with baptism in the one name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And central to your calling in the Great Commission is to preach the gospel and to baptize believers or professing believers in the one name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the two most basic foundational fundamental reasons why you are here tonight is inseparably connected to the doctrine of the Trinity. The Trinity is essential to rightly understanding everything else in the Christian life. The Trinity is essential for you rightly not only understanding, but ministering, pastoring, fulfilling your calling as a minister in Christ's church. So that's why we can say the Holy Trinity is not just one doctrine among many. It's not just something for the philosophers and the teachers and the seminarians. It's not just an abstract mystery that we can't really understand. The Trinity is not also, it's also not something we put high up on the shelf. Right? While we, more frequently we, we reach for the lower and seemingly more important things in which to feed our people. No, with the, word, with the, the words of our Lord right here, I want you to see that the Trinity is absolutely foundational to the Christian life and to the Christian ministry. Thomas Aquinas wrote, The whole of our life bears fruit and comes to achievement in the knowledge of the Trinity. Herman Bovink said, In the Trinity beats the whole revelation of God for the redemption of humanity. The Trinity of God is the secret of his ineffable beauty. The Trinity manifests the deepest, in, uh, uh, in, uh, the deepest meaning and truth of, of every doctrine and mystery of the faith. The Trinity is what distinguishes our God, the God of Scripture, from every other idol of this creation. The Trinity is what manifests him as truly infinite and eternal and immutable and all say. The Trinity is the very object of our faith, hope, and love. The Trinity is the foundation, as our confession says, of all our communion with God and our comfortable dependence upon him. Can you get any more foundational or any more practical than that? I don't think you can. And that's my endeavor tonight, brothers, to speak to you as a pastor to pastors. To see that you might see the beauty and the, uh, uh, and the utter importance of this doctrine for your own personal fo- uh, faith and growth, but also for the faith and growth of your people.
and for your churches in the fulfillment of that great commission. So I want to work through the confession line by line here, chapter 2, paragraph 3. And before we uh, um, open it up and start working through it, I, I want to explain my approach briefly and then make one comment about its placement in our confession. Um, first, when I began to think about how to preach this paragraph to you this evening, um, I outlined several different ways I could approach it. Uh, we could do an exegetical study and show and prove these doctrines from Scripture, um, jumping from text to text. Or we could approach this paragraph historically and show how it's tied to and flows out of the ancient creeds of the church. No doubt our Baptist forefathers utilized this language of the, and, and, and uh, teaching theology of the creeds, standing in that line, that stream of the universal Catholic church informing this paragraph. We can also consider this paragraph redemptive historically. There's many different ways we can look at it, but what I settled on at the end of the day is I want to approach it more theologically and philosophically. Um, that's my approach this evening, and I approach it this way because I want you to see, again, as I said earlier, how the confession gives us clear guardrails in which to ascent this great mountain. I want you to see um, um, and know how to use those guardrails in your respective ministries. I want you to see how our Baptist forefathers utilized philosophy as a handmaiden to theology and how important that is to the Trinity, and so that's why we're going to approach it theologically and philosophically. But the second thing I want to point out before we jump into it is, as you, as you brothers probably know, the Holy Trinity is not known through reason or science or experience or intuition or natural law or natural revelation. The Holy Trinity is a matter of faith. It's based upon faithfully receiving the special revelation of God in the Holy Scripture. So if we are to know these truths, we, we, we must have the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, and He must enable us to hear and receive God's revealing of Himself on the pages of Scripture. And so chapter 2, paragraph 3, follows chapter 1 of the Holy Scriptures in our confession of faith. So even though we're going to approach it theologically and philosophically, we must do so acknowledging that everything we say must be grounded in God's special revelation of himself in Scripture. So given this background, I want to consider three, three things tonight. Three things. Nothing safer than a three-point sermon, right? It's also very fitting for a sermon on the Trinity. Ultimately, though, three things, because I, if you look at our confession, it follows a cycle of three. Uh, the writers speak of one God in three, and then it returns again and speaks of one God in three, and then it does it a third time, speaks of one God in three. And it's almost like our, our framers uh, are intentionally echoing uh, Gregory of, of, of Nazareth, uh, Gregory of there we go, Gregory. <laughs> I should have put that in my notes. He said, no sooner do I conceive, 
He said, no sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. And no sooner do I distinguish the three than I'm carried back to the one. That's what we see in our confession. And that's a really memorable way to break things down. So three points tonight that we're going to focus on, if you're taking notes. Sacred subsistences, distinction without division, and peculiar personal properties. So let's begin by thinking about how our confession details sacred subsistences. Listen to chapter 2, paragraph 3, and how it opens. And it says, In this divine and infinite being, there's the one, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word, or Son, and Holy Spirit. Here's a first one and three statement in this paragraph. There is a singular divine and infant being. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Baptism is into the one name of God. This, of course, is classic monotheism. But in this one divine infinite being, there are three subsistences. The Holy Scriptures identify three as the one God. Three who are distinct. Three who are co-equal and co-eternal as the one God. Three who are to be equally ascribed worship and adoration and obedience. So the doctrine of the Trinity, of course, is not that there are three gods. Neither are there three parts of God that somehow come together and make up the one God. Rather, right away in this opening statement, the confession dispels those errors and says, basically, everything written in the first two paragraphs of chapter 2 are equally true of each divine person. Each person, each subsistence, we're going to see those words can be used, uh, those terms can be used interchangeably. Each person is identical to the one God in all of his fullness. Each person has equal participation and dignity and honor that flow from the one supreme nature. Each person is, is eternal and immutable and impassable and simple and, and say, following the previous paragraphs. Brothers, I impress this on you right now because I hope you see this is important even in our own Reformed Baptist circles. I've I've heard things recently. There are some who said, since Jesus said in his earthly life that the Son doesn't know the timing of his return, but the Father only, implying that there's some sort of omniscience that differs between the Father and Son, or some sort of subordination in the Son to the supremacy of the Father. These things are out there, and our confession says right up front, it dismisses those things by saying everything that is said of God in the first two paragraphs is equally true about the three divine persons. There is one infinite and divine and infinite being. All that is in God is God. But in this one divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences. The Father, the Word, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're going to return to the unity of the one in a moment. For now, let's think about, for a minute, this word subsistence. What is meant by subsistence? Why is this language important? Why was it used by the Baptists here? Most of you probably know that our Baptist forefathers 
um, made a change here from the Westminster Confession and the Savoy from which they were working on. They changed person to subsistence. It's not because, though, that uh, the word person as in three persons is wrong. It's just that the word subsistence is more precise. It's a better help to help us guard against error. We know that even in the 17th century, the, the Baptists were dealing with, with spots in their love feasts. You know, heretical views on the Trinity were sprouting up all around them. And, you know, a lot of those challenges to Nicene Trinitarianism, interestingly enough, didn't just come from the heretics. Particularly in Baptist circles, comes from biblicists as well, if I may use that term. Those who argue that we should stick to the explicit statements or wordings of Scripture and eschew theological or philosophical terminology and reasoning. Brothers, look, there's nothing more foundational than us being men of the book, right? The Holy Scriptures hold an unparalleled, ultimate authority over every matter in faith and practice, over every creed and opinion of men or private spirit, as our confession says in chapter 1. But, but even in our own day, we need to be careful because there is at times a subtle biblicism that can lead to some dangerous places. Listen to Calvin on this point. Calvin says, the heretics bark that Usia uh, uh, hypostasis, uh, essence, persons are names invented by human decision, nowhere read or seen in Scripture. But since they cannot shake our conviction that three are spoken of who are one God, what sort of squeamishness is it to disapprove of words that explain nothing else than what is attested and sealed by Scripture? Words which faithfully serve the truth of Scripture itself and are made use of sparingly and modestly and not at the wrong occasion. Calvin gets it right, I believe. Subsistence isn't a word found in Scripture. It's a, it's a loaded term. It's a philosophical term. But it's a term that faithfully captures and explains what Scripture teaches. So why then did the Baptist make this change to, from person to subsistence? Well, typically when we hear the word person, we instinctively think of human concepts and ideas of what a person is. There's a great danger in reasoning up from the creature to the creator rather than vice versa. You know, for example, uh, we don't look at our earthly fathers and then reason up to what God must be like as our father. Rather, if we were to rightly order our reasoning and our understanding, we begin with God as the archetype. He is the father of fathers. He's the epitome of father. And then we reason down to the creature and see how the creature is an analogy, an ectype, a type of the ultimate. Well, the same in this way. We, we cannot apply the word person to God in the same way that we apply it to human beings. And that's why... Uh, the, the Baptist made this change. Um, one of our editors of the confession, Nehemiah Cox, wrote this. A plurality of persons unavoidably invokes ideas of finite separateness, individuality, and distinct essences. So our confession tries to utilize the best possible language 
to avoid creaturely categories in order to capture the truth of Scripture. A subsistence. It is a mode of being by which a thing exists. It is the manner of existence of the one essence of God. And that manner of existence is defined in relation to the personal properties of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now hang with me because I'm going to define all of that in a moment. I'm just throwing out some definitions first. But the personal properties of the Father, Son, and Spirit are what distinguish one from another. Yet these personal properties are relative properties of the one essence. Again, hang with me. I'm going to come, I'm going to circle back here. I'm trying to explain why person was not used here. So, and the explanation simply is, while a relative property of God implies a person, because the three subsistences are spiritually and perfectly alive, they are all say, this can't be said of creatures. And that's why they changed it from persons to subsistence. Um, to put it even more simply, using subsistence helps us avoid saying that the three persons are three parts of the essence of God. And it helps us articulate that the only one divine essence exists in three relative properties. So, for example, take the essence of a human being. Two humans may have a common human essence in general, human existence or being, but two humans are not one of the same essence. But one divine being means that there is only one essence of God, and within this one essence of God, there are three diverse manners or ways of existing. Again, what this means is, that the three subsistences have the one divine essence in common, and that means that nothing can be attributed to the essence of God that is not also attributed to the three subsistences. Whatever Scripture teaches us about what the godness of God is, it exists in all three persons equally. All the attributes Properties that belong to the divine essence also belong to each of the three subsistences. And yet, the distinct personal properties of each subsistence individually, those relative properties that distinguish them from one another, cannot pre be predicated of the essence. Hang with me here. We're going we're gonna to get through this a little bit. One essence of God equally attributed to all three subsistences. Three subsistences where their peculiar personal properties are not attributed to the one essence. That's what I'm saying. Brethren, this helps us, using the sacred subsistences and understanding this, helps us distinguish the divine persons from one another, but also helps us to maintain their essential unity and oneness. God cannot be divided up into three parts. Three parts equaling a whole, or three parts meaning three separate gods. The multiplication of divine subsistences does not mean the multiplication of divine beings, or divine minds, or divine wills, or divine powers, or divine attributes. Each divine person is identical with the one God in all of his fullness. And brethren, as we 
before we move on, let me just exhort you on the utter importance of careful and precise language here. Particularly as you teach the doctrine of the Trinity to your people in the churches. Our confession's use of subsistence could, should serve as an example to us here. Language is important. Precision is important. Scott Swain wrote this excellent uh, book on the Trinity. I think there's some on the back table back here I saw. A phenomenal introduction to the Trinity to hand to your people. But he says this, The primary task of Trinitarian theology is to gain fluency in the Bible's primary Trinitarian discourse. We must learn to read it well, to grasp its terms, to follow its patterns, to master its grammar, and to put that grammar to use in our own well-formed speech acts of prayer, proclamation, and praise of God's triune name. Basically what he just said is subsistence serves to inflame your worship of God. The terminology and precision of our language serves for the purposes of greater knowledge and adoration and praise and service and obedience to our God. And that is central to your Christian life. That is central to you fulfilling the Great Commission in your churches as pastors. Secondly, though, sacred subsistences and now distinction without division. Distinction without division. We get another one and three statement in our confession. Basically what we get is a repeat of what it just said, just with further, elabor- uh, uh, further elaboration. So if we pick up here uh, with Father, Son, and um, Holy Spirit, <clears throat> it goes on, of one substance, power and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided, The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite, without beginning. Again, to reaffirm, we just considered all that can be said about God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is equally and must be equally said about the other members of the Trinity. The confession says here that the essence is undivided. It's referring unmistakably to the doctrine of simplicity. This is actually one of two times that simplicity is mentioned just in this paragraph on the Trinity. It shows, should show us how important simplicity is to our Baptist father, forefathers. How important simplicity is to a right knowledge of God. And uh, Pastor Scott, you'll be preaching on this soon. Um, uh, tomorrow, or I assume, um, simplicity of God. If, if they nail it down on the paragraph on the Trinity, you know it's important to them. And it ought to be important to us. All that is in God is God. All that is in God is all that is in each person of the Godhead equally. But of course, we then ask the question, okay, we've talked about the unity of God. How do we distinguish the subsistences or the three persons? Of course, when we talk about the unity, it does not imply that we cannot make distinctions. Three subsistences are identified as the one God, but they are also distinguished from one another. They are truly identical in one sense. They are truly distinct in one sense. But here in our confession, we see a distinction of the Godhead without a dividing of the essence of the Godhead. 
We distinguish the three persons of the Godhead, but not on the basis of any difference in essence or attribute. They are of one substance. Neither do we distinguish based upon their relationship to us in creation. As in, well, the Holy Spirit dwells in us, which distinguishes him in essence from the Father. No, we do not distinguish based upon anything in his relation to us or creation. Neither do we distinguish based upon our perception of the Godhead, as if there is perception and not reality. That's, that's modalism. <laughs> that's, uh, almost use a Scottish accent there, sorry. <laughs> it's modalism, it's Sibelianism. God doesn't wear a mask, you know, from our perception, this is how we distinguish. It's not really based in reality. No, that is a heresy. Rather, we distinguish based upon the manner in which each person relates to one another, and we distinguish upon the mode of operation in relation to each other. Now, of course, we can say, um, for example, the Father elects, the Son becomes incarnate and secures our salvation, the Holy Spirit indwells. Yes, these are distinctions that we can make. These are distinctions of, of mission, though. These are external distinctions. These are um, economic distinctions in relation to creation, in relation to the history of redemption. They are not distinctions in the essence or the inner life of the Trinity. And that's what this paragraph is dealing with, the inner life of the Trinity, which is so amazing when we get to the end. It talks about comfortable communion, right, independence. It's like you're talking about the inner life, but, oh, the inner life, oh, is it not practical? It's absolutely practical. So we distinguish based upon the manner in which each person relates to the other and on their mode of operation in relation to the other and not in relation to us. So to use some technical language, we distinguish based upon their relative properties, not based upon absolute properties. A relative property is a distinction in relation to something else. While an absolute um, um, Property is a distinction that is inherent or intrinsic. For example, my name, Nathan, is a relative property. It, it distinguishes me from, from Kurt or Reagan or Jerry, right? But if I were the only person in the world, there was no other human being, my name wouldn't distinguish me from anything because no other human being would exist. My name is a relative property only because the meaning depends on a relationship. It doesn't, it doesn't mean, um, it's, it's, it's nothing that distinguishes me intrinsically according to who I am. Another relative property might be that I speak English and I relate to other people on the basis of this English. And this distinguishes me from a person who speaks Spanish, maybe, and relates to other people in Spanish. Well, our language and how we relate to one another does distinguish in some sense. It doesn't inherently define our, our essential qualities or our identities as human beings. This is how relative properties are different than absolute properties. Absolute properties are something like, I'm a human being and I'm distinguished from an animal. An animal and human are two different entirely things. So the three persons or subsistences of God are distinguished by relative properties and not absolute properties. 
their relative properties are their names. The titles of Father, Son, and Spirit distinguish them from one another. They're also distinguished by their peculiar personal properties, how they operate in relation to one another. This is what we're going to talk about under the third point. These personal properties are not distinctions of nature or substance or essence. They are distinctions in the manner by which the person relates to the other. Again, like how I relate on the basis of English as opposed to someone else might relate on the basis of Spanish. The manner of relating to one another doesn't change the essence of the person or of the one God in three persons, but it does distinguish them from one another. Brethren, where this really hits home is in this last phrase, though, about, uh, from our confession. After detailing the distinction without division, our confession then states, all infinite without beginning. They circle back around again to remind us these distinctions are without division. Each of the three persons are infinite without beginning. Each of the three persons are one substance, power, and eternity with a whole divine and undivided essence. I think this is crucial because... We must not distinguish the persons of the Godhead in any way that brings about division in the essence of God or the Godhead. We need to grasp this idea of relative versus absolute properties to help us see what Scripture reveals. You're probably aware of the ESS, EFS controversy in recent years. ESS refers to Eternal subordination of the Son. It's a false doctrine that contends that the Son submits in obedience to the Father from all eternity, typically because of some distinction in his nature or his being. EFS is similar. It tries to say something similar, except without the blatant heresy. EFS means eternal functional subordination of the son. Functional subordination contends that there's nothing in the son's nature uh, uh, or being as the reason for his submission. Uh, he doesn't submit because of, you know, differing ontology. Rather, EFS argues that the son submits willingly or functionally for harmony, as it were, from all eternity. You know, kind of like wives submit to your husbands, not because wives are inferior as if they're not made in the image of God or they don't hold the dignity of, 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 of a male or uh, the dignity of a human being. Rather, wives submit to your husbands based upon role, the peace and harmony of the home as God designed the home. That's something similar with what they argue with EFS. Brothers, I, I'm going to go ahead and state it. I, I believe these errors go directly against what our confession states. If the Son is subordinate to the Father, either essentially or functionally, we're making distinctions in the Godhead that bring division of essence. If we say that, we're making the functional roles between the Father and the Son to be part of what distinguishes them, as if there's some sort of hierarchy in God. If we say that, we violate the one substance of God as if the Father and the Son have different wills or different dignity, or different authority, or different supremacy. 
This, this turns common properties, which is among them all, into personal properties, which distinguishes them from one another, and thus denies the doctrine of simplicity. It could also speak to how it challenges or denies inseparable operations as well, that the three persons, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, work together in perfect unity, and they cannot ultimately be separated in their actions. As Augustine said, wherever one of the persons is named in relation to a particular work, the entire operation of the Trinity is understood. Contrary to the subordination uh, doctrines per our confession, the persons of the Godhead are of one substance, power, and eternity. Each person is co-equal and co-eternal. And whatever we affirm about the substance or power or eternity of the one person, we must affirm about the other divine persons as well. Absolutely, in the economy of redemption and the incarnation, the Son submitted as a human being to the Father, as the obedient, suffering servant. But but again, we must not project this back into eternity. We must not confuse the, the economy of salvation with the inner and necessary life of God in eternity, because doing so distinguishes with division by making these distinctions real or absolute rather than relative. And ultimately doing so, I believe, fails to follow what our Lord spoke of in John 5, 23, that we are to honor the Son just as we honor the Father. Distinction without division. Well, all this kind of leads to a crescendo of sorts. I've spent most of the time talking about the unity of God and how we are to make proper distinctions. But what are those relative properties by which we distinguish? Third and finally, peculiar personal properties. Let's think about that. Peculiar personal properties. There's one more one and three statement in the confession. It's toward the middle of the bottom. Starts with, therefore, therefore but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar, relative properties and personal relations. The properties by which we distinguish the persons are peculiar, meaning that the personal property of each person cannot be attributed to the other two. The properties are relative, as explained before, no distinctions in being or essence, but in subsistence. The properties by which we distinguish are personal. The object of the act is the divine person. And the properties by which we distinguish are relational, because the distinction is found in how they relate to each other, again, not by how they relate to us or other beings in creation. So how do we distinguish? The confession says, The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The peculiar property of the Father is that he is of none. As we'll consider in a moment, the Son is begotten of the Father. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, but the Father is not begotten. 
neither does he proceed. And this is what distinguishes him from the Spirit and the Son. All three persons are say, aseity, of himself. But while the Son and the Spirit receive their aseity from the Father, the Father receives his aseity from himself. He is the one who begets. He communicates his substance to the Son. His peculiar identity is in giving out his fullness to the Son and with the Son to the Holy Spirit. And that's why he's called Father. Because of his relation to the Son. Not because he is different in essence or being or attributes or glory or supremacy from the Son, but simply because he begets the Son. He's not called Father because he's uh, uh, his relationship with creation, because even apart from creation, even apart from redemption, by virtue of his relationship to the Son, he is the Father. He did not become a Father at one point in time. That would certainly undermine immutability. He is eternal Father. And and it's amazing, too. You think about, really, uh, all three, God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, can rightly be called Father um, in in one sense. It's like Isaiah 9-6, speaking of the Messiah, the Christ. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. According to His one divine essence. So we distinguish the Father from the Son and the Spirit because the Father is of none. He is not begotten. He does not proceed. But the Son is distinguished in how he alone is eternally begotten of the Father. What this means is that the Son receives the whole essence, excuse me, the whole substance of the Father by communication from him. He's begotten eternally, and that's why he's called the Son. His Sonship in relation to the Father. Remember, we distinguish based upon the relation. The Son relates to the Father in this way. That's why he's called the Son. Of course, again, we need to be careful not to think of these things in creaturely categories. Right? The Son is begotten. When we think about, you know, I have a Son. I've begot a Son. Um, but this is eternal generation. It's not begotten in time. The Son is eternally begotten. There was never a time in all of eternity in which the Son wasn't begotten. He eternally proceeds from the Father's very being. The same substance, without multiplication, without division. Not tritheism, not modalism, not undermining simplicity either. Thus, only the Son has the relative property of eternal generation. Only the Son is begotten of the Father. Only the Son is the radiance of the Father's glory and and eternally shines forth. That's his unique, peculiar, personal property. Finally, the Holy Spirit is distinguished by how he alone proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Spirit is breathed forth by the Father and the Son. This means he receives his substance from the Father and Son together. He receives the divine essence without multiplication, again, without division, from the Father and the Son. And this too, like the begottenness of the Son, is eternal. That's his unique personal property. The Father doesn't receive his substance from the Son or the Spirit. 
The Son receives His substance from the Father, and the Spirit receives the substance from both. And that's what distinguishes them from one another, all touching on how they relate to one another. Now, I do want to make a brief note here about um, the philoki, proceeding from the Father and the Son. Uh, philoki is Latin. Uh, it means, and the Son. Of course, most of you know, it's a point of controversy between the Eastern in the Western Church, uh, they split over the question, does the Spirit proceed from the Father alone or from the Father and the Son? The philoki, which is affirmed by our confession here, says that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. They adopt and embrace and confess the philoki. <clears throat> now, I don't want to call anyone out here or be mean or rude. Uh, but recently, a prominent Reformed Baptist made some public comments, very public comments, implying that it wasn't really important whether or not pastors or churches really understand the nuances of the philoki or whether they could explain it and uphold it. Brothers, I just want to point out our confession right here affirms it. And if you're a pastor and you don't understand or cannot defend this doctrine, Maybe you shouldn't be in the pulpit until you can. This is not a minor point of doctrine or even of church history. And again, I don't say this to be harsh. I don't want to be sectarian. I don't want to be rude. I don't want to call anybody out. But, but this is not a secondary doctrine. Because, because think about it. If we distinguish <clears throat> the persons of the Trinity based upon their relations to one another, right, or their relations of origin, then if we don't affirm the philoki, we lose the critical aspect of what distinguishes the second from the third person in the Trinity. Do the Son and the Spirit both proceed from the Father alone? No. The Son proceeds from the Father, the Spirit from the Father and the Son. The philoki is necessary for pro properly distinguishing the Son from the Holy Spirit. So again, how do we distinguish these three persons based upon their relate, how they relate to one another based upon the manner of their working in that relationship? A father works of himself. This is, listen, this is, this is careful language, listen. The father works of himself by the son and through the Holy Spirit. The son works from the father by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit works from the Father and the Son and by himself. And this too, I believe, protects us against any form of subordinationism. Because while we can attribute certain works to certain persons, we, we cannot ultimately divide up the manner of their working from one another or set up a hierarchy of such. They work together in unison. Thus, we can ask of each person, does the Father or the Son or the Spirit have the whole divine essence? Yes, because each one is God in himself with respect to the divine essence. Okay, so in what manner does this person have the divine essence? What manner does this person have the divine essence? The Father is of none. 
The Son is begotten eternally of the Father, and the Spirit proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son. Brothers, the point is, if you distinguish the internal life of the triune God based upon anything else than what's stated right here, you're outside the bounds of the confession, and you're on dangerous ground. We distinguish based upon these things in our confession. And I give you this language of sacred subsistences, distinction without division, and peculiar personal properties, all which come out of the confession. I present these things to you as critical guardrails in our confession so that you you can learn to use them and put them to work and, and help you ascend and take your people up that mountain of truth to know and love triune God and Savior as he's revealed in Scripture. Brothers, to bring this all to a conclusion tonight, I'm going to circle back around to where we began. began by asking the question, why, why are you here? You're here because you have been baptized into the one name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and you're here because you have been commissioned by the risen Christ giving gifts to his church to preach and baptize disciples into the one name of Father, Son, and Spirit. I hope you see at this point why our confession concludes by saying that this doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and our comfortable dependence upon him. That's our brother Logan's job as he began this morning, to open this phrase up to us. So I'm not going to expound it tonight. But as he very helpfully said this morning, it is the knowledge of the Trinity that leads us into the communion with the Trinity. Because, you know, when you are baptized into the one name of the true triune God, it doesn't just mean that you've been baptized into his name as a relative property, as if, you know, his name are just words that we use to refer to him. And it doesn't mean that you've just been baptized under the authority of his name. Now, that that phrase comes a few verses earlier where, where Jesus says, All authority in heaven has been given to me. To be baptized into the name of the triune God means that you've been baptized into a covenantal relationship with him. We hold that baptism is a means of grace. Something is actually happening in that act. The one God of Father, Son, and Spirit, they are taking the one baptized out of the realm of death and into the kingdom of life into a personal communion and fellowship where we become partakers of the divine nature. That's what it means to be baptized into the triune name. And as Spurgeon said it best here, what is that personal communion? He says, nothing, is a famous quote, nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And while humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consolatory. Oh, there is, in contemplating Christ, a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrows? 
Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity. And you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of grief and sorrow, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. This is what you've been baptized into if you are a Christian here today. And to echo this, this baptism into communion, John Owen says, take away the doctrine of the Trinity and there can be no purpose of grace by the Father and the Son, no covenant for the putting of that purpose in execution. And so the foundation of all fruits of love and goodness is loss to the soul. That's what you've been baptized into, those comforts and those graces. And what have you been commissioned to as a minister? It might be just ask the question, what do you want your churches to look like? What do you want your churches to look like? We live in a world where God is spoken of, the, the, the noun God, the word God, the phrase God, it's thrown around by athletes on TV. I just want to thank God. Musicians or actors, movie stars, God is with me, God supports me, God helps me fulfill my dreams, only God can judge me. But Calvin said, unless we grasp the Trinity, only the bare and empty name of God flits about in our brains to the exclusion of the true God. Do you want your people to know the true God? You must not just speak of God. You must speak of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because whatever you teach and whatever we think and whatever we contemplate about who God is and what he is like, that is what ultimately will shape us the most. So brothers, let us then, by God's grace, see and embrace this one and three. Let us cling to that comfortable dependence and communion that flows out of God as revealed in the Holy Trinity. And let us, for the glory of his great name, lead our people up that mountain of truth so they too might behold their God and be conformed into his image. Amen. Let's pray. We do call upon you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we stand in awe at the immensity of the divine perfections, just the thought of the infinite God in all of your glorious, perfect, eternal attributes. Lord, we cannot comprehend this mystery, but we can cling to what you have revealed to us on the pages of Scripture. We pray then that would you help us would you help us to see and behold you as you're revealed? Would you open up to us, each one of us here, how the Trinity and the knowledge of these things, Lord, intersects with our devotional life, with our piety, with our conduct in the home and in private and in the Christian life. But also, would you open up for us, Lord, how we might lead our people into these truths and how these truths might change and affect and, and, and improve our ministry, our preaching and our teaching and our shepherding so that churches, Lord, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ might flourish and your name might be glorified and praised for who you are. We pray for your help. And we pray to you, Father, in the name of the Son, by the Holy Spirit.
Amen.